Chiesa Nuova is the ugliest church in Assisi. My friend Dawson and I stopped in there one afternoon with time to kill. But we didn't stay long. Just enough time for me to snap pictures of some of the worst paintings, a fresco of Adam and Eve that made them look kind of like cave people, and a picture of what looked like a pubescent Jesus asking if you wanted to buy his sacred heart real cheap. Actually, I can show you that one. Hold on a second. That's what it looked like. <laughs> we made one circuit of the small sanctuary and felt no need to ever go back again. But that night we read a story of St. Francis that changed all of that for me. I knew the outline of it already, how Francis, having had a vision of Jesus telling him to repair his church, had gone off and sold a bunch of the fabric from his father's silk business, and then sold the horse that he had rode to that sale on and left all of the money on a windowsill in a country church how his father came after him and Francis hid in some cellar for days. And when he came out, he looked so bedraggled that people thought he had lost his mind and tried to stone him. And when his father finally caught up to Francis, he carried him back home and locked him into a small room, purportedly right on the spot where the Chiesa Nuova was built 400 years later. They even had a little room cut out of one of the pillars with a, an iron grate locked over the front of it, which was supposedly the place. And then how, when his father went away on business, Francis's mother released him. And how Francis never came back to them except to give back the money that he'd taken and to tell his father that from then on he was not his son. I'd read that story in the biography we'd been assigned, but, but that night it hit me differently. Maybe because the book we were reading from then took such a harsh view of Francis's father, painting him as an over-the-top villain. Or maybe because I now had a better idea of how hard Francis's life had been once he left his family how much he suffered, or maybe it was because I'd been away from my own child for more than a week and was missing her. Whatever the reason, that night I felt for that father. I identified with him, his desire to save the one that he loved, even from himself. His pain in, in nursing this young man back to health for a year at the brink of death, only for him to head off in this strange new direction that his father couldn't understand. That temptation to, to chain him up, to hold him, to keep him somewhere where he couldn't do anything too rash, somewhere where the world couldn't do anything too rash to him. To, to just lock him away until it was safe to let him out until the storm had passed, until he was ready. I know those feelings. I know that temptation. Not just as a parent, but as a child, as a friend, as a spouse, 
as a pastor, in every relationship where I've ever loved someone and seen them struggle. I know that feeling of if if you would just listen, if you would just follow my advice, if you would just let me take over for a while, just let me do it until, until you're ready. I haven't locked anyone in a little room yet, but I have felt like it from time to time. And as monstrous as that sounds, I know I'm not alone. For one, because it's basically the plot of the new Disney movie Turning Red. An overprotective parent locking their kid in their room to save them from, their se- from themselves. And also basically the plot to last year's Disney movie Luca. And also Tangled and Lion King and Little Mermaid and... Sleeping Beauty and Snow White and basically the plot of every Disney movie. That urge, that temptation, that that if I can just keep them in this tower, this ocean, this cottage, this cage until they're ready, until it's safe, then then I'll let them go. I know I'm not alone and, and if you've ever felt this way, you're not alone because it's still one of the things people come to talk to me about most. How do I get my parents to do this? How do I get my spouse to do this? How do I get my sister? How do I get my son? And my answer is always basically, you can't. Or if you can, you may be sorry that you did. You may end up the bad guy in the story. Paul doesn't want to be the bad guy in this story. He's trying hard not to be that bad guy. But he is feeling the temptation. At least that's how I read the letter of Philippians. All my commentaries say Philippians is Paul's most joyous, positive letter. It's remarkable, they say, considering he was in prison facing a possible death sentence. And maybe I'm cynical, but I read that and think, yeah, because he's faking it. Through the first chapter, he keeps saying things that sound like he's trying a little too hard to convince the church people that he's okay. Like he literally says, I'm actually glad to be in prison because I'm telling the guards so much about Jesus. And in another place, he goes on and on about how he's not really sure whether he'd rather live or die. Because if he dies, he gets to be with God. If he lives, he'll come back and see them. So it's basically a win-win. And the verses that Jen read this morning are another place where he's saying the right things, but I'm not really convinced. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. In other words, you've got this. You have what it takes to figure out what you're supposed to do, who you're supposed to be, to discern your own path toward God. You don't need me. You don't, you know what to do. Doesn't matter whether I live or die. I'm not nervous about you at all. But all you have to do is back up a few verses or go forward a couple to hear the strain in his voice, to see that temptation to control, 
Just before he tells them to work it out for themselves, he gives them this long list of do's and don'ts. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. In humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Look not to your own interests, but the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. And afterwards, he goes right back to listing. Do all things without murmuring and arguing so that you may be blameless and innocent. Paul is like the parent who rattles off a long list of rules and then says, I trust you to make good decisions. No one is buying it. I think Paul is afraid. Afraid that he might not be there for the Philippians when they aren't ready and when the world is such a difficult place. Afraid like Francis's dad was. Afraid like parents today who worry that their trans child will be bullied when they come out. Afraid like the sibling who picks their brother up from another 30-day stint in rehab and drops them off at their place hoping for the best again. Afraid like the child installing grab bars in their parents' bathroom, hoping it can prevent the next fall. Afraid like the friends who think this relationship looks a lot like the last three bad ones. Afraid like the parent watching their child struggle and not being able to make them go to therapy or to the doctor or to church or out with friends or out on a date or wherever they would make them go if they could make them go somewhere. Afraid like me, and maybe you sometimes, when we see the ones we love struggling and we wish we could just make them, wish they would just let us, wish they would only listen because they're not ready and the world is such a dangerous place. Paul feels it, that pull to take control, that impulse to to keep them safe, even from themselves. He loves them so much, he just wants to lock them up for a little while, but he knows he has to love them even more. He has to love them enough to not lock them up, to not control, to let them go. So he reminds them and himself of the only thing that really gives him any comfort. He stops in the middle of his long list of rules and tells them what he hopes is true. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, enabling you both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. Even in his fear, even from his prison cell, not knowing if he will ever see these beloved ones again, he tells them, it's okay. It's going to be okay. You have God. Or God has you. God is holding you always. So even with white knuckles, I can let you go.
Even if I have to adopt a breezier tone than I really feel about it in the moment. Like, you want to go to the park around the block with your 11-year-old cousin for the first time? Uh Uh-huh. That sounds great. That'll be fun for you guys. Even if I'm tempted to take it back, even if I'm terrified, even if Paul is terrified, Paul can tell them truly, it's yours to work out. Your salvation, your life, you have what you need. You've got this. Or if not, at least God's got you. There is one good piece of art at Chiesa Nuova, a statue in the courtyard. My friend Mary asked me that night if I'd noticed it, and I hadn't. So the next morning we went back, and nothing there seemed quite as cheesy with that story in my head, thinking of all that is asked of us what it takes to love someone without locking them up, to have and not to hold. Thinking of the pain of those parents in that spot and in every spot. Out in the courtyard, Mary showed us the statue. It was of Francis's parents. The stern father holding the fine clothes that his son had stripped off and returned to him. And his mother clutching to her chest the broken chains. Both staring off in grief at their beloved child walking away. There's a dark patina over the whole statue except for one spot those chains. They have been rubbed bright and shiny by countless hands pausing to touch them. Some probably touching them and remembering what they had to do to break free and become the people they were created to be. And others like me who held them who hold them and feel the temptation to keep, to protect, to control. I touched them thinking of all the people I love, all the people for whom I am afraid. And I prayed to the God that I trust and hope lives in each of them saying, okay, okay. I will try to let go. Make sure you don't. 